Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here, and today I've got something you're gonna like. Over the past few years, Capital One's business credit card offerings have made them an industry leader when it comes to return on spend and rewards. Capital One recently rolled out two products, the Spark Cash Plus business card, which gives you 2% unlimited cash back, and more recently, their Venture X business card, which gets you 2x miles on all purchases, 5x miles on travel, and 10x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through CapitalOneTravel.com. We're big fans, and the flexibility and value are huge for anyone running a business. Please connect with our friend Heather Clohesse from Capital One to learn more. I'm dropping her contact info in the show notes. If you're an entrepreneur, you know how valuable the right support can be. We've heard tons about virtual assistants, but what about leveling up even further? Let's think about experts. I came across more staffing recently. They're not just about connecting businesses with virtual assistants. Instead, they focus on matching you with professionals from the Philippines. We're talking about finance, supply chain, operations, marketing, and others. The real kicker? More staffing goes the extra mile. They back their placements with a 12-month guarantee, and they even coach them for the first six months. This ensures you're getting someone who's not only skilled, but also integrates seamlessly into your operations. If you're ready to evaluate and transform your business, head over to morenow.co. Again, morenow.co. Next year's creeping up quick. If you want to skyrocket revenue in 2024, you need tech that puts you in the pilot seat. The new HubSpot Sales Hub will help you close out the year strong and kickstart your success for 2024. Teams can collaborate on every inch of the customer journey and keep operations running smoothly with a comprehensive prospecting workspace and powerful sales and analytics tools that keep data connected across teams. Speed up your workflows and navigate your platform with ease with the AI-powered conversational platform ChatSpot. And use AI Assistant to write copy, generate emails, and more. They'll help you whip up assets and execute tasks that used to take hours out of your workday. HubSpot Sales Hub lets you accelerate every facet of your sales operation with precision. And with over 1,400 integrations, there are tons of ways to mix in new features. So finish out Q4 strong and gear up for the new year with HubSpot Sales Hub. Learn more at hubspot.com sales. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're really excited to have on Mikey Taylor. Uh, Mikey, I don't even know where to start. You've done so much. You've been everything from a professional skateboarder to... Um, you know, having your own fund to real estate to be even being in politics. So um, I didn't even know really where to start this interview, but I guess we'll kick it off. I'll give you the mic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and and, and what you're up to? Uh, okay, background. Uh, I started my first career as a pro skateboarder. Uh, it just was a passion that turned into a profession, which was amazing. Uh, the challenge with that, I had to figure out what I was going to do after skateboarding. And so my original plan was basically to live like I was broke and save as much money as I could to invest into, you know, the stocks and bonds and real estate. And then halfway through my career, I started my first business uh, in the craft beer space. It was a brewery called St. Archer. And we did really well with that. We, we became the fastest growing brewery in California or one of, and then we sold our business to Miller Coors in 2015. And then from there, I started my current business, which is Commune Capital. We're a private equity real estate firm. Uh, we focus on multifamily and storage. And then recently, last year, I decided to run for uh, city council in my uh, neighborhood. It's about 125,000 residents. Uh, so this is my first full, how would you say it? My first, uh, what would be the right word? This is my first time ever even thinking about getting involved in local politics. And so it's been 
it's been interesting. It's been fun. It's been kind of all of the above. Yeah, I mean, you're you're used to like getting comfortable and being uncomfortable, though. I mean, you know, growing up with skateboarding, that's basically what you do, what you did. One, I want to take a step back to your career um, with skateboarding specifically. One of the things I find the most interesting is how back in the days that was like the OG influencer where the brands were getting the sort of arbitrage sponsoring these skaters. And I mean, they were paying some of them five grand. And nowadays the creator is charging five grand for a single post. So um, I feel like that was the original era of like influencers. And then, you know, the skaters realize and now they're starting um, their own brands themselves. And you have a bunch of skateboarders who like Tori Pudwell and a bunch of other people um, having their own brands. How was it like in that era to just like work the dynamics of like sponsorships and work with those brands? Um, it was, I mean, part of it was fun, right? Like you, you had to learn how to negotiate and you were trying to do, it's actually a very good analogy you used. You know, you had to do what a lot of creators, creators are attempting to do now, which is how do I not just do these one-off brand deals? Like, how do I get a longer term contract? And, you know, that was basically all we had as an option. All you had was long-term contracts. So we just didn't have the short-term stuff, which meant we didn't have the pop in revenue, but we had, I guess you could call it a little bit of security. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I've never thought of it that way, that that skaters kind of got a, got their feet wet with what influencers feel like now. But um I mean, you know, there was a handful of things that cross over. You wanted to align with brands that uh, made you more valuable or, or were respectable. Um, you wanted as long of a contract as possible if you felt like your career was getting closer to an end. And if you were hot and going vertical, you wanted a shorter term deal so that you could negotiate more on the back end or, or when it was over. So th there actually is a lot of crossover. Yeah. Like there was this flipping where creators started like just starting their uh, skaters started their own brands, right? Was this like the power of just content building an audience and then, you know, the social media platforms and having an audience or um, was it just more dynamics of like the skaters themselves? Um, you know what? To tell you the truth, there's there's still not enough skaters starting businesses as they're really even close to could be. When I was young, there was a handful of them. You had like Jamie Thomas, you had Andrew Reynolds, you had Mike Carroll, Rick Howard, Danny Way and Colin. Like you did have people that were starting businesses. And how I looked at that as a kid was, oh my gosh, if you own the company, then you could be here forever. Like there's no company that's going to kick you off because you own the entity. So that's kind of how I originally looked at it. I think social media is in a lot of ways, made it easier for you to build an audience and know what the audience is worth. But I, I, I don't think a lot of skaters have really wrapped their head around how to fully take advantage of that opportunity. You know, like skaters still today, by and large, are just trying to do sponsorship deals. Most of them aren't opening up their influence to make money in alternative ways. You know, most of them still don't start businesses. So I don't know if that's because skating is more creative and it's rare to have a, a full creative that wants to build a business when their true passion is skateboarding. I'm not sure, but uh, 
there's still a big challenge happening in the skiing industry. They, they they haven't figured it out yet. I mean, there's also like this stigma of like too cool to start a business. I mean, even more prevalent back then than now. It's same in the surfing community. How did that happen for you? Like, when did you start shifting gears into just having the more business mindset? And what was the first array into, I guess, St. Archer from, from skateboarding? Well, I, I actually always was attracted to the skaters who own businesses. Like, Jamie Thomas was a big one for me. Like, I, I remember, like, growing up as a kid, watching him, and he would be in the videos, like, filming the other pros, and I had never even thought that like a pro skateboarder would also film everybody, right? And then I found out that he was like really involved in editing the movies. And then I found out he owned the companies he rode for. And every layer to him that was added on top of it, I thought he was cooler and cooler. So I think from the beginning, I was naturally attracted to that type of skater. Uh, you know, touching on the cool part of it, like the first business I started was beer. Like beer is like inherently cool. So I didn't really have to worry about starting a business that wasn't perceived as 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 good. Uh, that was like a, I think that made us even cooler. Starting my current business was probably more of where, where you were alluding to, which most skaters don't talk about money. They don't talk about investing. That is a side that is not cool. And so I think I experienced more of a backlash starting my current business than when I started the first one in, 2012. So Mikey, when you were starting that first one in 2012, right? Uh, beer is uh, beer is cool. You decide you want to start the brand. Why don't you walk us through it? What was it like getting the brand off the ground? And you know, why beer? How'd you get started? And, and what was that journey like? Yeah. So uh, the why beer, uh, I was with a friend and we were talking about all action sports, right? We we're talking about surfing, skating, snowboarding. And we were talking about the new companies that are always coming up in our industries being very similar to one another, right? Like it just so happens that it's always a clothing brand or a shoe brand or a hat brand. It, it was always a similar kind of, I don't know, lane. And so we just got stuck on this conversation of what it would be like to introduce something like, like a never been done to our space. Like what could we create where everyone would go, oh my gosh, this is insane. Like I never thought of doing that. And that conversation basically led to beer. My, the, my, who would become my partner basically throughout there. Like, what if we did beer? Like, how insane would it be if we dropped a craft brewery on, on the skateboarding community? And as he said it, I looked at him. I went, that would be out of, like, that would be out of control. I was tripping on it. As he said it, I'm tripping. And so I'm going, dude, if we were to do this, I think we would get such wide support in the skate community. And my partner, was he was from the surf industry. He's like, dude, we would get the same support from surf. And then we had friends that were snowboarders. They said the same thing. We had friends that were musicians. Everyone was like, do this. And so that was kind of where we came up with the idea. Um, we didn't have enough money to start the company ourselves. So we had to basically get help on how to start a business plan. We had to go out and raise money. We had to build a team. We had to basically learn as we went in real time, which was insane, but also really fun. And and when you were doing that, like, I, I'm curious about how you were building the team. Like, who were you bringing on to do it? Like, you know, where were you going to find capital? And, and, and how did, talk to me about the early stages of execution at the brand level. Okay, so uh, when, when, when you start a team with no experience, basically what happens is you start talking to your friends and family and people you know about what you wanna do, right? 
And somebody is eventually going to say, oh, I've got a guy in that space. Oh, I know somebody who brews beer. And so our original team was basically built that way. I have a friend that designs. I have a friend who brews beer. I have a friend who's head of sales at this brewery. And so we kind of built the team that way other than our CFO. The CFO was a little bit of a unique story. We had the team that we were presenting. We had the business plan. We were out there raising money from basically friends, family, anyone that our network would connect us to. We were speaking to everybody. And we ended up talking to these two guys that were pretty sophisticated. And they basically ripped apart our plan. And one thing that they really pressed on was who was going to manage the money. And we kind of brought in a friend of ours that was more of like a bookkeeper. And they were like, there's no way you guys are raising money running a business with a bookkeeper. You have to have a CFO with you know X amount of experience, et cetera, et cetera. But they loved our idea. They really liked our idea. So they were like, actually, I'm going to connect you with uh, somebody we know. He's the CFO of like Sony Music Group or something like that. And then he was the only one that came on to start the company with us that was like, you know, heavily, heavily decorated with experience. And then we started it and you know, throughout that year, we had to make changes. Like, you know, as we started learning about what we were doing, as we started learning about the space, uh, we had to move people around and some people kind of, you know, we had to let go of during that, those early years. That's just kind of what you go through as you're trying to, to start something. You know, the interesting thing is like the CFO is the one role where like the person, you know, there's no such thing as like too much experience for the role. Because like if you're early, you get a guy who was a CMO and then he needs a team of like five to 10 people can easily blow your budget when like, you know, that the fact that you guys went to market in a different way and ended up winning, it's because ignorance is bliss as well. So I'm curious, like what were some of the things when you guys were getting started that you just did unconventionally and you're like, holy shit, I guess that worked because we didn't know what the normal way was. Oh, that's such a good question. That's a phenomenal question. Um, I would say the two that stand out. Uh, actually, I'm going to tell you the one because it's going to resonate with what you guys do. So when we were raising money, we were raising money right around 2011, beginning of 12. And we were looking at where we were going to allocate all the dollars and we were looking at our marketing budget. And at that time, like every dollar was valuable because we weren't like, we didn't have a ton of money to just blow. And so we were looking at our marketing budget and my partner looked at me and goes, dude, what if we cut back on the marketing budget and like, let's just like post this stuff on Instagram. And remember, this is 2011, 12. There's no ambassadors. There's no influencers. There's no social media marketing, right? And he goes, what if we take our investors and move them to ambassadors? And then we build all of this content, mini documentaries on all of our ambassadors and tell their story of their view of California through their lens. And the whole thing will be launched on Instagram. We won't have to spend the 75 grand we have allocated, whatever it was. And at that time, I didn't know how valuable Instagram was, but I was like, dang, it would save 75 grand. Let's do it. So we started doing that. And when we did it that way, we didn't promote the beer at all. The only mention of beer was presented by St. Archer. And then everything else was the person, right? And when we did that, the other breweries were clowning us like crazy. They, these guys, this isn't even a real brewery. 
They don't even know beer. This is a gimmick. They're all about, you know, marketing. And it ended up like completely disrupting the space. And it wasn't, you know, it was only a year and a half later where you started seeing every other brand in the space pivot their marketing. So that was one where we were just like, yeah, let's just try this. Like, I don't know how this would be. Like, no one does it. Let's just try it. And then it ended up, you know, being huge for us. I think it was maybe the largest reason that put us in the position of, you know, the growth we had and then ultimately the exit we had. I love that. Did you guys sell retail as well or was it just a brewery? We, so we were in, we were in people's, uh, we were in bars and then we were in like grocery stores as well. And then we were in some stadiums. We got in Dodger Stadium. That was like a massive one for us. What was the roller coaster like? Like all the way to the acquisition? How long did this run last? So it was about three and a half years. Um, that was fast. Very fast. We did not expect that to happen that quick. Uh, it was a roller coaster from the second we started till we finished, like up until like the last month of the deal closing. Um, you know, for anyone who hasn't started a business yet, just know that it basically feels like that always. Even, you know, now I've started since then eight different businesses. I still feel that today. Like, you know, yesterday I feel like we're, we're crushing the world. And then today I'm like panicking. It's business is a, an emotional roller coaster by nature. Uh, it's just hard. And back then we had no experience. So we didn't know that that was natural. So, you know, one quarter we're like, dude, we're, we're on top of the world. We just opened up this distribution. We're making these waves. We're getting all this press. And then the next quarter, we're like, we're running out of money. We're going to go out of business. You know, it's just, that's how it was. Yeah. I mean, so speaking of the roller coaster, one thing I want to dive into is like, you're an absolute content machine. And like, you know, I remember you, um, you know, I would DM you like five plus years ago, responsive. I'm like, Mikey now has an audience like 10x, if not more, the size of when like I used to DM him. I DM you, you responded. You're active. You're active on X, on Instagram, on TikTok. You even have a text group and community. And so like not every day feels like, oh, today is a great day to make content. When you're that consistent, you probably make content every single day. And so I just want to hear more about like, what is your content workflow like? How do you become a content machine like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, and, and remind me to talk to you about this because I would love to get your perspective on this as well, because there's something that I'm mentally working through also. So uh, basically my flow of content or how I go about it, Mondays are, I, I am dark. I, I come into the office and my assistant knows there is zero scheduling me on Mondays. No one can get a hold of me. I am locked in the office or wherever I'm going to be working. And that day is meant for basically concepts and copy. So on Monday, what I attempt to do is come up with 10 to 12 different concepts and then write them out so I have all the copy. Tuesday is a full-blown work day for me. It's meetings. It's, you know, uh, if anybody, if we're looking at deals, that's going to be the actual business is going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, I am filming all day. So that is start to finish. I'm in front of the camera and then Thursday, Friday are normal business activities, raising money, working on concept we're, concepts we're doing more of a traditional approach to business. And that allows me to basically have content that comes out daily where Monday through Sunday, I can be posting something. 
But even even for like that that mon that Monday where you create the concepts, that's been refined over years. The first time you sat down to conceptualize, it's like it probably took you all day, and now you're like, oh, this is how I like brainstorm. This is how I come up with concepts. How have you, you know, refined that process of concept conceptualizing? That's a good question. So there's a. I'll tell, I'm, I'm, we're going to go through my whole marketing approach right now. So I have a, I'm going through a split right now where I want about 60% of my content, 60 to 70% of my content to be around investing or business. And then I want about 20% to actually be more about my real life, family, kind of the, the other aspects of my life that I enjoy that I think should be highlighted. And then the other 10% is more just my personality, right? Doing more behind the scenes with the office, and it kind of just, you know, how I communicate and, and, and work with other people. That's kind of my breakdown. And so on the 60%, 70% of business stuff, there's kind of two, uh, I would say, buckets that I grab inspiration from. One, I'm making notes of everything that happened throughout the week for me. If somebody calls me and asks me a question, if we're working on something and I realize, holy crap, that's an issue. I'm making notes of it so that that next week I can basically create a concept around that problem. Um, if it's just a question that like my parents ask me, like, Mike, uh, what the heck do I do? Do I do I pull cash out right now on our home? Do we do a heat lock right now to do a kitchen you know, renovation? Oh, actually, this is why I would or wouldn't do it. And then I just write it down in my notes, build a piece around it. Uh, and then the other thing I try to do is take relevant news. That one is the only part of this that really throws off my schedule because sometimes something happens and there's a lot of energy around it and you want to jump on it quick so that your video can ride the engagement happening at the moment. That's the only part where I'll do one-offs. Like, you know, a a Javier uh, becoming the new president in Argentina. That wasn't part of my, you know, uh, copy from last week. I saw it and went, oh, you know, he wants to pull the peso and jump on the on the dollar. Everyone's talking about this. I should do a video on it. I mean, the fact that you take Mondays for this just shows like how important content creation is for your business. And it's crazy how early we still are on like founders and, and businesses taking content as their number one priority. So when did that change? Like, why do you take content so seriously? <sighs> okay. So it really started after we sold the brewery. Like, Going into starting a brewery, not realizing how valuable social media was, and then selling the business for what we sold it for, that is when I went, oh my gosh, this I have a machine behind me that I, I'm not even sure what the true value is, but whatever I think it is, I'm undervaluing it. At that point, that's when I went all in on content. Uh, but here's the funny part. There's levels to it, right? Like, about eight months ago, my partner and I went out to Florida to, uh, we have a handful of investors out there. So we went out to see some investors. We had a conference we were going to, and we ended up meeting up with Patrick Bet David. Are you guys familiar with him? Okay. Yeah, of course. So we meet up with Patrick, and this is right when he was about to complete his new studio for Valuetainment. He goes, I'm going to run you guys by the studio, right? I'm like, all right, let's do it. So we're checking out the studio. You know, we're getting just basically everything that they're doing. We go out, have lunch at his house afterward, and then we ended up flying home the next day. And as I'm walking through his studio, I'm what I'm feeling inside is, oh my gosh, we're not even competitive. 
like it's almost like if you were like a hometown hero or like an amateur and then all of a sudden you stepped into the big leagues and your first night you went, I am not prepared to be here. That's what it felt like inside, right? And so I'm like thinking about this all night. I get on the flight and right when we take off, my partner looks at me and goes, dude, we're getting smashed out here. We need to 4X your content. We need to figure out how to 4X what you're doing. And I went, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said that because I was feeling that inside. So the next day, I basically called my assistant in here. Michael, our COO, came in here and we redid my entire calendar. We changed all the priorities up. We got very disciplined on time management. And basically, I created a wall in front of me that I didn't have before, where if people wanted to reach out, I was like, yeah, connect, connect, connect. Now it's, this is what I'm doing on these days. This is what I'm not. And it's it's very rare that somebody goes direct to me now. Now everybody goes to Tawny and Tawny has basically lanes in which will create a, an open door or a closed door, right? Why do you want to connect with Mikey? What's the purpose? What's the potential outcome? And if those answers don't align with what we're currently focused on, then we that's where, that's where it ends for the time being. And that is what's allowed me to be able to really ramp up what I'm doing on a content standpoint. We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals. And we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. You know, I really resonate with that because one time, so Grant Cardone invited me to his office when you heard my story as a testimonial for the TEDx. And when I went in there, his operation for making content, the energy in there and like how many people were just there. He had like four different studios going on at the same time. Um, and this was like probably like six years ago or so. Um, and so it, it just takes a lot of time into, I mean, there's so many different facets of content. So like you mentioned, Tani now handles your um, inbound, et cetera. How many people are helping you in terms of like the content pillars themselves? Is it just you and Tani? And like the content creation is one man show? Really good question. So we have... Uh... Let's see, one, two, three. It's about four people total uh, that help. Um, you know, one is filmer and editor. One is kind of management of all of the process. Tawny is not technically on the content side. Tawny is like, like we refer to her as the wall. Like she, she basically has control of the schedule that we create together. Um, because, you know, we kind of talked about in the beginning or you alluded to it. When you're doing a lot of things, you can't waste time in that process, right? That, that's what limits you from getting the things done when you have a full plate. And so in that, it's like every quarter, we basically set my schedule and then she's the one that basically holds me accountable to it. Um, it, it and it's, I think that's the only way to do it. I, I'm not sure how do you do it any other way. Yeah. Um one other thing is like the monetization side of the content is like what I think you've mastered in the sense that you have found opportunities through the network and the people you've met through your 
audience and then monetize it in non-linear obvious ways whereas like a lot of creators think that like sponsorships are the main form of revenue and it's like you don't know who you could meet who could then start a business with you and then with that audience becomes your customers and then you exit that business rather than being so focused on like selling a post um, or selling sponsorships so what advice do you have for people who are making content in terms of like thinking long-term about the monetization angle or how to leverage the network or community the most? Yeah, I, I think you have to look at it really through the same lens that we look at investments or even for someone who's not a creator, there's two buckets. You have cash flow and then you have appreciation, right? You have your income and you have your wealth build. The same thing applies for creators. Like, you know, if you're going to do things like, you know, monetize your your platform by starting a business or finding partnerships that will lead into something else, that's back-end activity, right? That's long-term. And typically, if you're saying no to being paid now so that you can be paid on the back-end, you're going to make more, right? But all of us need cash flow to sustain on the front end. So you're playing this balance of what deals can I do to have revenue coming in to support myself? And then how can I be making moves to have ownership in some of the brands I'm marketing or create my own company so that two, three, four years from now, oh, now I'm watching my net worth skyrocket, right? So it's just the front end, back end balance. And Mikey, the last question I had on, on content was in terms of channels, right? So I know a lot of creators are thinking a lot about like, where do I create content is just Instagram. How do I keep up with Instagram, YouTube, et cetera. Obviously, you're a machine, you have a team with you, but like, where does content resonate the most for you? Like what channels do you see performing the best? And how do you think about continuing to grow content on those channels? Before I answer this, I just want to tell you guys, uh, you, this is uh, the, the questions you ask, I can tell how much value you provide to your audience. It, 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 insane, like very, very well Thank done, you. boys. Um, okay, so... For me, I'll just let you guys in behind the curtain. Uh, I build everything with TikTok in mind. So when I'm creating content, I'm thinking of TikTok first, more or less because it has the truest algorithm to show you if your content is good without audience bias, right? And so I like putting it there to see how it's going to perform. Then from there, I take it and put it on Instagram Reels. I put it on YouTube Shorts. I put it on Twitter. I put it on LinkedIn, even though I'm kind of, I'm not as consistent on that one. And I'm trying to get one piece to go everywhere. But TikTok is my filter at the top. Um, the challenge that I have that's a little bit unique to me is I started building my brand as a pro skateboarder on all of these platforms first. And then I did basically a full 180 of the content I put out now. And it took a very long time transitioning the platforms for people to be with me now versus where they were seven years ago. Instagram, I have pretty much fully transitioned. TikTok happened after, so I got to start fresh. Uh, YouTube, I have not fully transitioned. And X, I I'm just getting my feet wet now. I'm trying to transition it now. So on X and, and YouTube, they do not perform as well for me because I still have a big bulk of an audience that doesn't want to see the content I'm creating. But TikTok and then Instagram lately, Instagram's like, it's flying now. Like, I mean, that golf content is so good for you. Just like hitting balls, talking about financial advice. 
I'll forward it. I'll send it to my girlfriend. And she's like, is he just like hitting false talking about financial advice? It's ridiculous. But but it's interesting. If you would have told me two years ago, I would have told you I could care less about Instagram. I'm all in on TikTok. If you were to ask me today, Instagram is more valuable to me than TikTok. Even though I test on TikTok first, Instagram, because of the competitive nature of the market, has had to figure out how to get your content out to the masses. So you're finally getting engagement up. Your following's finally growing. And then from a sales standpoint, you can convert way more people on Instagram than you can TikTok. What's interesting is like how you've leveraged this to um, the capital market. So let's talk about commune capital. And you still use the socials. Like you think, you know, that now if you started another consumer brand, it'd be easier this time around because now you've mastered the social platforms. Um, but commune capital isn't something that would be obvious to people that you would use social and community as a leverage point. So what is commune capital um, today? So we're a, okay. So the technical term is we're a private equity real estate firm. What that really means is we, we go out and find real estate investments that people can participate in passively. So if you guys were both like, look, I want to own real estate, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to find the project. I don't want to get the financing. I don't want to manage it, but I want money invested into it. You would find a group like ours to invest in where we do all the work. And then, you know, when done right, we pay our return out to the investors. And then our business gets to take a percentage of the profits in that. That's basically by and large how it works. Now, when you have a company like this, you're always if you have opportunity, raising capital, right? And so one thing that I wanted to do early on is I wanted to raise money on social media. I didn't want to do what we did with St. Archer, which was have a coffee, have a dinner, you know, talk on the phone because it felt very limited to the amount of people I could get in front of. Even when we launched Commune, the very first project that we did with Commune, we raised money the old school way. I was for two and a half months speaking to eight people a day. And it was like coffee, coffee, lunch, coffee, coffee, dinner, coffee, home. And I remember feeling so burnt out. I was like, there has to be a better way. This is insane that I'm still driving around meeting people, seeing if they want to invest with me. What am I doing? You know, But I didn't have proof of concept yet on social media. And we had a deadline on when we needed to raise capital for but I remember going, I don't want to do that again. I want the money to come from social because I could create a piece. That piece can be seen by 100,000 people. That would then result into potentially, even if it's 120 people that I'm now speaking to, I, the, just the numbers don't compare. So I started doing that early on. People thought we were crazy. We started going heavy on TikTok. People thought we were extra crazy. And now about 80% of our capital stack comes from social media. Yeah, that, that's really inc incredible. And I think it's like the same lesson that you had even told about when you're starting Archer, right? You identified something different and you're saying, there's something here, like what are our skill sets that are different from what everyone else is doing? And like, let's go in on that. And you're just like you're saying, having to go coffee to coffee to coffee to raise capital, if it doesn't make sense, you kind of flip the model on its, on its head and that's where the arbitrage is and then everyone else has to follow. So why don't you talk us through um, the launch of the fund, some of the projects that you've done, and what is the growth, and you know how how's what's it been like growing Commune? Okay, uh, some of the early projects. Um, so, uh, actually, you know what's interesting because I just talked about this yesterday, so I'll, I'll mention it. 
when we first started the business, we were building out our multifamily portfolio. And in 2016, what I thought was the big opportunity was all of these big malls throughout America basically going vacant. And I thought the opportunity was going to be buy these things at discount because they're basically on their deathbed, scrape them and build apartments. Or at that time, it was I really kind of saw the trend heading towards mixed use, right? Retail below, living above and like a true like community type of area where like you don't have to go anywhere if you don't want. And so that was the beginning focus, really. We bought a, a, a mall in Ohio, right outside of Cleveland, and it was going to be a huge project. So we went through kind of entitling it. And right when we got to the point of being able to build, we ended up selling, uh, selling the project. So we did pretty well with that. A big reason why we, uh, well, we sold it because it was, was going to be a great return. But what we also saw was a change in the opportunity. I really started seeing what was happening in California with the housing crisis that was basically being built up, right? We had years of investors going, I'm not investing in California. Why would I invest there? Red tape, regulation, taxes are through the roof. Like th this sounds insane to do so. And so you had a lot of people leaving the state and then really 2020 intensified it. And what that did was it created a housing shortage of about 2 million units in our state. And so that's really what I started seeing the new opportunity as, finding these cities that are severely undersupplied and building housing there, knowing that all of my competition is trying to buy in Texas and you know pick a, pick a, a, a Midwest state. Like that's where everyone is. And so we kind of moved the strategy towards a very hyper-focused California. Uh, and so that's kind of where, where, where we are right now. Our heads are down, our foot's on the gas. And like truth be told, we can't raise money fast enough for all the opportunity that's in front of us. It's a, a very unique window that we're in that I don't know how, how long it's going to last, but I'm acting as if it's not going to be here for much longer. And I think that's another really important thing is being able to like pivot when you see market conditions change, right? And understand where the opportunity is to go after. So in your case, it was saying, hey, we got a good opportunity on this mall, but like I see this opportunity. Let's kind of f pivot the strategy a little bit. And and what are you seeing from from the real estate markets in California now? How are things looking? Uh, I, I'm going to answer that, but I want to touch on that because it's actually a really important point. You're right. You're right. How should I say this the correct way? Because I... Okay. You are correct. But the one thing that you really want to be mindful of is you can pivot on opportunity, but you need to be careful with like doing too radical of a pivot, right? Like for us and, and, and for the like real life example, we are in multifamily. We understand multifamily. So what we did was we changed really the location of what we saw as the opportunity but we didn't pivot the asset class. We weren't multifamily. Oh my gosh, everybody's at mobile homes. We're now doing mobile homes, right? That is actually a challenge that a lot of people have. They chase the new trend or they chase the shiny object instead of hunkering down on, on one specific thing. Once you're in that specific thing, then you are absolutely correct. You might have to move and tweak things as new opportunity presents itself. What we're seeing in California specifically, this is an interesting one, uh, the state is trying to make it easier to build real estate here. And it, it is it is still insanely difficult to do so. And it is still harder to do business in probably any other state other than maybe New York. 
And so you have a lot of investors on the sidelines because they don't want to invest in California. You have a lot of investors on the sidelines because they can't get financing right now. Uh, you have a lot of people on pause. And the way we're taking it is when people are on pause and when people are scared, that's when you're able to come in and take market share. So we're trying to do the opposite of everyone else. And and I think that's a great segue into the stuff that you're doing in politics. Like, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that got started, where the interest came from, and and yeah, walk us through all of that. Okay, so I had zero interest being in politics my entire life. I, I never liked politics. I always had a distaste whenever somebody would talk about politics or even politicians. I just, I didn't like them because they never felt real. They felt like salespeople that told you what you wanted to say and you never knew who they really were. That's kind of the opinion I had. Uh, this idea for me to try to get involved with that mess happened right around 2019 or so when my wife wanted to start looking at other areas to live. And for context, the, the city that we live in is where we grew up. Like it's small town. I, you know, I see people I went to school with today. Like this is what we know. And I didn't want to leave. So that basically conversation eventually evolved into, you know, me telling my wife, hey, babe, instead of us trying to find, you know, other places that might have something that we don't like, why don't we try to be a part of the change and create the things that we don't have? And uh, her response was, yeah, okay, how are you going to do that? And so uh, I, you know, spent some giant time trying to think about what that would look like. And I landed on maybe I can get involved and the the one lane that I felt really, uh, you know, I could be of value in was city council, right? Like city council, by and large, their responsibility is it's land use. It's real estate is a big component of it. It's, you know, economics uh, or, or your local economy. It's, you know, managing, it, 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 it's creating the policy ultimately on how the business of the city is run and then the experience is run. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Like it's local, it's nonpartisan. I get to, you know, I don't have to like, you know, mess with all like the national issues. And so I went for it, not knowing anything, tried to do it in the way I would launch a business and it ended up working. And then I got elected and I've, I'm about to complete my first year. And, and what's that, what that's, what has that been like? What, what were some of the learnings? What were some of the things that you ran into that you were able to kind of like move the needle on what did you get in and learn and say, oh, this is like way different than I thought it was going to be. Okay. So the campaign was probably the most, the campaign was the closest thing to running a business or, or entrepreneurship uh, in the whole process. I had no clue what to do. You have to figure out how to get your name out to people and get them to, to basically vote for you. So you could see the crossover with business um, or with entrepreneurship. Things that I've learned once getting in, uh, that's a good question. I used to get frustrated with how slow the government is. Uh, I at least now have an understanding on why it moves so slow. So maybe I'm uh, a little bit more sympathetic to the speed in which it moves. Uh, because in theory, you don't want to break the government in a business, this happens all the time. Like you make an error and you move too fast and then you go away. Um, I would say having to work with other people that have a different opinion of you and having to do that in a public setting, I'm, I'm actually learning a skill set that I didn't have prior. 
Like all of the negotiation I've ever done has been behind closed doors. I'd have to worry about the way in which I said it. Now you're negotiating with people basically on the dais while the community is watching. And so you have to be a lot smoother with how you speak. And so I, I, I'm learning that, which I think is a, a huge benefit. That's a good point. I never thought about that. It's like as, as founders in the remote world, like I've never had like a big office with my team there. So I'm not even used to like having to necessarily be mindful of like, you know, the environment around whenever you bring up something. So as we get towards the end here, Mikey, I feel like we've been jumping around so much, but like there's no other way to cover like the spectrum of things you do. Um, one of the things that I think will really resonate with the audience is being a founder, you often are either pouring your entire net worth back into your business, or if you raise venture, um, it takes time to realize the liquidity if you ever do and you don't know when. And so, for example, Blaine and I live in a place like Miami. Rent is absolutely nuts here in Miami. Um, and I was curious looking at like North Carolina because I'm like an apartment here is like four grand plus. I'm curious for you and for founders who are listening right now is renting better than buying. Um, and then what are the top like upcoming cities at the moment to where you're like, you know what, maybe like I should just get out um, for a bit and then maybe come back in the future. Yeah, really. Maybe that's personal advice. Hopefully really? it applies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but, it's yeah. a really good question. Now, it's going to be specific to your business, right? Like for you guys in the space you're in, and you kind of just nailed it. In theory, you don't need a huge team in office that you're in front of every day. If that's the case, that makes it a lot easier for you. Because in theory, you could go to North Carolina and your business doesn't suffer at all, right? The the thing that you want to think of when you know you ask the question, should you rent, should you buy? If you're in the scenario like a lot of us are, we're, we're building business, uh, we have at least a view of where we're going to build our true wealth, you're not going to accomplish that comparison by buying a home. Buying a home, in my perspective, isn't really an investment at all. I think it's a forced savings account. Uh, I think it gives you a lot of qualities beyond the money itself. Um, and there's a lot of reasons to buy. But if you're if you're stacking the price to rent and the price to own in a lot of markets, it makes more sense to rent than buy right now in a lot of markets. Uh, now, if you're somebody that doesn't have a business, uh, you're not doing activities that you view will build your wealth, and a home is really going to be that one factor that's going to force you to save for your retirement. And also home ownership keeps a lot of people out of poverty. For that group, try to buy whenever you can. Like, who cares if home ownership is more expensive than rent? If you can afford the home, buy the home. And so I, I, it really depends on, on who you are and it, what your goals are and what your situation is. So I think what I'm hearing is, Ramon, you should rent in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> we're neighbors um i'm open for lauderdale he wants you to go down to miami beach i'm like dude look at zillow in north carolina it's looking good yes yeah, so look, there, there, there's we'll yeah see. there's things you you, yeah. you want to think of right like there's there's cities that are that are blowing up the carolinas are, are probably the two obvious ones that are cranking arkansas is like becoming cool there's a lot of areas that are becoming cool right some of the things that i think of uh you want to think of basically cost. What's the state tax that actually does have an impact? 
But more than anything, I want to be surrounded with people who are pushing, pushing the limits, pushing the needle, right? Like I don't want to be off in some remote cave in the middle of nowhere. I want to be where the energy is because for my personality, I do better when I'm pushed. When there's competition happening, when there's competition around me, that is when I'm at my best. And so I try to be in areas where I feel that pressure. Uh, if you're not like that, you're not ultra competitive and you're just looking at it from a cost standpoint, yeah, find the the, the cheapest cheapest place you can that's going to have the lowest cost of living and go live there. Yeah, yeah. The opportunity cost, you can't measure though. So um, Mikey, as we wrap up, I have one last question, which um, since you mentioned about your personality, one of my favorite quotes from you is like when you say that you're not the best, but you're really good at being obsessed. Um, what does that mean? Like, why is being, how can being so obsessed outlast being the best at something? Okay. So for me growing up, uh, I had about seven friends who were skaters and I wasn't anywhere close to the best. I had two friends in particular who were just spewing with talent, God given talent to skateboard. And for me, I always wanted to be as good as them. And so what I saw was I had an obsession with improving and it was so easy for them. They just woke up and just did their thing. And what I found was both of them actually didn't even come close to the career that I had because the obsession is what creates the discipline and the discipline is what creates the consistency, right? That in my perspective is way more valuable than when everything's just easy for you. I think Kobe Bryant is, is a perfect example of it. Kobe Bryant was not the best basketball player because he was talented. He was the best basketball player because he was obsessed. That The obsession and the drive to get to as close to perfection as you can, that's what creates greatness. And so I just found a lot more value in that, even though it's frustrating as hell. I, 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 it drives me nuts that I'm this way. Like e Even when I was a kid, I was so frustrated that I wasn't as good as Justin, or I wasn't as good as, as Van. Like, but that frustration is what drove or or put the the energy behind me to outwork everyone, you know? So I think there's just a lot more value in it. Conor McGregor talk, talks about the same thing. I love that. Um, I think that's an amazing piece of advice for whether you're an entrepreneur, a skateboarder, uh, you're in business, anything you're doing. I think that's super, super valuable. So Mikey, want to thank you for coming on the show. We had a great time. Uh, and why don't you shout out your socials? I know you just mentioned about every single platform that you're on, but for our audience that's tuning in, where can we find uh, you? You can pick the platform and put in just Mikey Taylor. I'm at Mikey Taylor on all of them other than X. That one's an interesting one. It's like Mikey, uh, Mikey undersl underscore Taylor and the L is a one. It's ridiculous. That, that one's a failure. <laughs> all right. Thanks for coming on this. Oh, boys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.